Mark chapter 14, once again, in the Word of God, we've come to the passion of the Lord Jesus Christ in Mark's Gospel, the final portion of this incredible story, a true story. And we saw that in the darkest hours of the night, Jesus was agonizing in prayer in Gethsemane. That is where he is suddenly accosted by Judas Iscariot. And Judas, of course, has betrayed Jesus. He's led a mob of Jews and Romans to arrest the Lord. The disciples forsake their master at this very trying time as Jesus is securely led away. He's going to be led away for the trial, which we will examine in our text this morning. So that's where our text begins. Let's stand out of respect for the reading of God's word. Let's read Mark chapter 14, verses 53 through 65. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest, and he was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death, and they were not finding any, for many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and three days I will build it Uh, another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus, saying, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, Prophesy! And the officers received him with slaps. In the face. That's the reading of God's infallible word. You may be seated. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit right now would open our eyes to the significance of what it is we hold in our hands, your holy word. Father, I confess to you my inability to. Speak your words as I ought. I pray that in spite of me, O God, would you move among us, Lord. Would you touch the hearts of your people? Would you open our eyes to the tragic injustice that our Lord endured for our sakes? Father, would you make us more Christ-like because of what it is we see in this text? Would you move in the heart of perhaps somebody here who doesn't know Christ and bring them to know the Savior in a personal, genuine way? Lord, this we ask in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Imagine with me for a moment that you are living in the days of the Soviet Union, behind the Iron Curtain. And one day, rather suddenly, there's a forceful knock on your door. It's the secret police. They've showed up informing you that uh, you are to come with them. You see, 
they tell you that an informer has snitched on you and you are to be taken in for questioning. Well, you know, you've done nothing wrong. You're a good communist and so uh, you feel there's nothing to be worried about. But then the secret police bring you to a secret room for a secret hearing. And as the interrogation begins, you begin to fear the worst. They tell you that the informant who has witnessed against you is your neighbor, the one that absolutely hates your guts. And she's told them that you are an enemy of the state. You are a counter-revolutionary. To make matters worse, three of your friends have already confessed that you are a counter-revolutionary under thorough interrogation. And when you insist, this is not true, there's a mistake here, the police assure you that you will confess the truth under sufficient interrogation. And this would be somewhat comic if it wasn't actual history. This has happened to many, many people. In fact, I think we know this, that in this corrupt, unjust world, many times justice, so-called, is nothing more than a mask for cruel injustice. You've heard of a show trial, right? A show trial is a public trial where the judicial figures have already decided the outcome of the trial. But they hold the trial to put on a show of legality. They insist on playing out the show in order to send a message to the public. The whole thing is disguised as a legal process, but it's really nothing more than a piece of propaganda. And politicians who control the courts and the media, they will use a show trial, a show of legal process, to eliminate rivals and dissenters. They can do it legally speaking. They can do it justifying themselves with a show of legal hearings, killing their opponents and intimidating others, and all without tarnishing their public image. It's a common thing in our world. We live in an age of show trials. And that's the situation, though, in our story. Our text recounts some of Jesus' show trial before the Sanhedrin. It's a tragic miscarriage of justice. But it's historical. And this is eyewitness testimony. The Apostle John was present for at least some of the hearings. And there were surely others, servants, perhaps even some of the Sanhedrin here in these proceedings at this time, that later converted to Christ and would tell their story. Of course, the defendant in this case would himself later live and give report of these very things. So verse 53 begins that they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Verse 54 tells us Peter had followed him at a distance. Peter followed Jesus. He did love Jesus. He wanted to be true to the end. He follows at a distance because he is full of fear. And and then he attempts to blend in, we're told, in this courtyard of the high priest. And we're going to come back to Peter in our next study. Mark actually sandwiches the story today of Jesus' true confession of his identity between Peter's false confession of his own identity. Very ironic. But in the meantime, we're going to focus on Jesus is arraigned in court. He will be examined in two different trials over the next several hours. One is a religious trial before the Jews, and the other was a political trial before Roman officials. And both were necessary to eliminate Jesus. 
the high priest knew that a religious trial was necessary to get the Jewish public, public's approval. They needed to save their public image, the Sanhedrin did, before the Jews while eliminating Jesus. But at the same time, this council had no official power to actually execute capital punishment. And so they needed the consent of the Roman government too. They would need to bring Jesus to a political trial, to the Romans. So they need religious charges. They need political charges. This is a complicated affair. Both the religious and political trials involve three phases. And Mark doesn't give us all the details here. But just so you're aware, if you compare all four Gospels, you will discover the first phase of Jesus' trial actually begins in the house of Annas. It begins before Annas. It is Jesus' arraignment before the former high priest. John 18 tells us this. Annas was no longer officially serving as the high priest, but uh, he was deposed by Pilate's predecessor, but he was still recognized with this honorable title. Josephus tells us this was much like a former president in the United States is still recognized by the title Mr. President, even though they're no longer serving in that capacity. And so here you've got this powerful family. It's the most powerful family in all of Judea and all of Palestine. Annas and Caiaphas are related here. They hold power over this extremely lucrative temple system, the same system that Jesus has just exposed on Monday of this very week. He's exposed the corruption. And this family is like this this Jewish mafia at the head of some religious organization, and they must eliminate Jesus. Typical of the Sadducees, of which Annas and Caiaphas were members, they approached morality and religion much in a practical, political fashion. It's very Machiavellian. They will use religion to save face, to save their public image while doing their dirty work. And so they really don't care about eliminating Jesus. Annas, son-in-law, Caiaphas, is now the acting high priest. He's the one that we're going to see portrayed in this particular narrative. But I think we could say, in some senses, Annas is sort of pulling the strings. That's why he interrogates Jesus first. Bringing Jesus to Annas first would allow Caiaphas some time to gather some witnesses, to gather together his own court, his own kangaroo court. This would take some time. He had to build a case for the Jews and for Pilate all before dawn. So the first phase of the trial was before Annas. The second phase of the trial is Jesus' examination before Caiaphas and his council. And that is what Mark is going to be addressing in our text in Mark chapter 14. The third phase of the religious trial was a public retrial and it was held before all the Sanhedrin and Mark relates this in Mark chapter 15 and verse 1. The first two phases of the trial were necessary to establish a conviction. They needed grounds on which to condemn Jesus to death. But the third and final phase that Mark talks about in Mark 15, 1 was a public condemnation of Christ and it was to all make this entire proceeding look legal, look legitimate. So that's an overview of the religious trial, but Mark's concise summary, I hope you will see here, shows that Jesus endured the worst of injustice. Jesus will endure in this trial alone the worst of injustice. And though this trial is going to escalate through a series of hearings, I want us to see how Mark reports Jesus endured four terrible injustices during this trial alone. And these four cases of injustice really involve multiple counts of injustice, but I'm, just for for sake of keeping it simple, we'll say four phases of injustice. The first 
injustice was the capital trial itself. We see that from verses 53 and 54. As unjustified as Jesus' arrest was, the trial itself was plain illegal. First, we see that in the location of this trial. That was illegal. Verse 53, they led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Luke 22 records, they brought him to the house of the high priest. The problem here was that the the law said a sentence of death could only be passed in a designated court of law. For the Jews, that was in the chamber of hewn stone. That's where the Sanhedrin would meet. That's where law was legitimately passed and recognized. But Jesus is not led there. He's led to the house of Caiaphas in this case. The great Jewish philosopher Maimonides recognized a sentence of death can be pronounced only so long as the Sanhedrin holds its sessions in the appointed place. Likewise, the Jewish Talmud stated, after leaving the court, no sentence of death can be passed upon anyone. You see, the private residence of the high priest was not a legitimate place upon which to sentence Jesus to death. This was not a place for trying suspects or issuing judgment. So the fact Jesus is taken to the house of the high priest smacks of an illegal proceeding. Also, the time of the trial was illegal. It was held at night. And a capital case was not to be held at night. The Jewish Mishnah specifically stated that capital cases required both a trial and verdict during the daytime. But the Gospels are plainly indicating to us Jesus was being tried in the darkest hours of the night, sometime probably here between 2 and 3 a.m. in the morning. Now, why did the Sanhedrin hold Jesus' trial at night? Well, they wanted to convict Jesus before all of Jerusalem was waking and had learned of Jesus' arrest. They needed strong grounds of conviction. And so the time of the trial was also ignored. We could also see here the time span of the trial was illegal. In cases involving capital punishment, Jewish law required a second hearing on the following day. This also would mean that a capital case then could not be legally carried out on the eve of a feast day, like this was, on the eve of Passover. Because that would necessitate that in a capital trial, you would have a second hearing falling on the holy day. This, this was all an honorable precaution among the Jews, who, by the way, had one of the noblest code of laws at the time. This honorable precaution acknowledged the severity of capital cases. It prohibited hasty judgment. In fact, in our trials in the U.S., if somebody is to be sentenced in a capital fashion, the death penalty is to be handled with a two-phase trial. In the first phase, there is a guilty verdict determined, but in in the second phase that must follow before the same jury, there must be a second trial, where the one question asked is really, is capital punishment necessary or not? So we recognize this, and even U.S. jurisprudence today, there should be extreme care when handling a capital case. But no such care is afforded Jesus in this trial. Jesus is now being tried. It's about 3 a.m. or so Friday morning. And about 12 hours later, Jesus will be on the cross dead. It should be very clear to us as readers that this entire process was illegally expedited. 
They needed to do away with Jesus, and they wanted to do away with him fast. Now, at this point, some will insist that Mark's report of this trial is really nothing more than early Christian anti-Semitic propaganda. And the injustice of this court is not a blight upon the Jewish people. That would be a grave misunderstanding here. Let's remember that Jesus was Jewish. His disciples were Jewish. All the early church basically was Jewish. Mark writing this report to us was Jewish on the testimony of Peter, who was himself Jewish. This is an anti-Semitism here. This is a statement of historical facts. John chapter 11 relates to us the political realism behind what's happening in the scene. And it's something that happens all the time in our sinful, corrupt world. The Sanhedrin realized that if they didn't do something about Jesus, John says, soon enough, everyone would eventually believe on him. And the real concern, he tells us, was this, that the Romans will come, they said, and take away both our place and our nation. Well, they were good politicians. They didn't want a messiah to stir up the Romans and bring their nation to ruin because they knew this would mean losing their own share of power. But Caiaphas, at this time, reassured them not to worry, for he was confident that Jesus would be sacrificed for the sake of the Jewish nation. And his prediction, ironically, had nothing to do with Jesus, in his mind, dying for Israel's sins. It was simply about national security. It was the fact that, in his mind, as a good politician, we must eliminate Jesus. It's nothing personal. It's just business. It's for the sake of the greater good. It's for the sake of keeping our hold on this nation and this temple system. But ironically, his words would be true in more ways than one. This capital trial, then, we can see throughout the Gospels, was never about justice. It was never about discerning the truth, discerning whether Jesus actually merited capital punishment. It's not about due process of law. This is Machiavellian to the core. This is politicians sacrificing principle for power. That's what they want. And they had their reasons. Verse 54 tells us, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest and was sitting with the officers and warming himself at the fire. Again, we're going to revisit Peter in our next study. But verse 55 now introduces a second injustice, a second phase of injustice Jesus endured. The first injustice was the capital trial itself. The second injustice was contrived testimony from verses 55 through 59. And this really involves several counts of legal malpractice. But what was so legal about it, illegal about it? Well, First, they allowed Jesus no advocate, no witnesses. As they're contriving their testimony against him, and the prosecution is bringing forward a case, Jesus is allowed no defense. He's been forcefully arrested in the middle of the night without warning, without any warrant for his arrest, and now he's immediately being tried without any chance to call witnesses on his own. This is a tragic miscarriage of, of justice. There's no defense attorney, no no witnesses, no public attorney given Jesus. Because remember, this is nothing more than a show trial. No wonder then, Isaiah 53, 8, foretold of Christ, by oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Not a single sinner will speak out for the sinless one. 
But another count of legal malpractice here was that their mind was already decided. Verse 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. I'm sure you've seen in some courthouse somewhere, you've seen depictions, sculptures of Lady Justice. She's standing tall with scales in one hand and a sword in the other, and she's blindfolded. Why is she blindfolded? She's blindfolded to indicate that justice is impartial. Her judgment is without respect of persons. It is impartial. She doesn't judge based on the color of skin or ethnicity or who is there being accused. Her judgment is according to what is just. It's fair. And this is why Jewish law would forbid one's acquaintances or enemies from sitting on the bench in a trial. They didn't want partiality and judgment. They wanted impartiality. They wanted justice. But do you see the problem here? These men accusing Christ are his enemies, both the witnesses and those sitting on the bench, those proceeding over his verdict. These men are his enemies. They hate him. Mark has told us on more than one occasion they've already been seeking to kill Jesus. And now they try him in a show of legal proceedings. In John 7, 51, Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin and a secret follower of Jesus at the time, said to his colleagues, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears him and knows what he is doing, does it? And the answer is, of course. Of course, we will hear out someone's case before we issue judgment. That's what the law required. But Mark's telling us that their sole intention in this trial was to give Jesus a death sentence. They had their mind made up. Their verdict was already in. And they are willing to bend the law then, ignore the law for political reasons, for the greater good in their thinking. Mark says they kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death and they were not finding any. They were not finding any. That's a testimony to Jesus' perfect innocence, isn't it? I imagine the secret police started examining your life, prying into your life, pulling all the skeletons out of your closet. What could they come up with? It's been said before, if, if someone was to try to bring down your testimony as a Christian, show you're not really an authentic believer in Jesus Christ, what could they come up with? What dirt could they dig up on you? Well, for all their efforts, these men were not able to find any conviction against Jesus. Verse 58 says, For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. And here's another count of legal malpractice. Their testimony was contradictory. It was contradictory because, of course, it was contrived. They made it up. But this wasn't the truth. The law of Moses required that at least two witnesses would come forward for capital conviction. You couldn't convict one on the mouth of one witness alone. So the council has multiple witnesses coming forward against Jesus. They wanted to put on a good show of legal proceedings. The problem was that in their show of cross-examining these witnesses, even this basic cross-examination reveals glaring inconsistencies. The contrived testimony isn't holding up. 
This must have stung these men with embarrassment. And Mark shares one such instance of this pseudo-witness brought against Jesus. Verse 57. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. This is a another count of legal malpractice, actually, because their testimony involved twisting Jesus' words, taking Jesus out of context, misrepresenting our Lord. The fascinating thing about this statement from what we read in John chapter 2 is that Jesus did actually make this statement, or he made, he made I should say, a statement to this effect. They've slightly altered it. They certainly take it out of context. What Jesus was saying is he was making a prediction of his death burial, and his resurrection three days later. He says, this body, the body of my temple, will be destroyed, and I will allow that to happen, and I will raise it up three days later. Well, that would happen. But here, Jesus' words are being twisted and used against him, just like the media will do so often to their uh, political enemies or to Christians whom they despise. And in such a way, then, they're accusing Jesus, this witness at least, of being a terrorist, taking him to somehow mean that he had plans to destroy Herod's temple. I mean, that's, of course, that does not resonate with the character of Christ. But notice verse 59 says, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. That is to say, not even their contrived statements could bear up. They were inconsistent. They were not true. That was very evident. And we see examples of this sort of thing today, don't we? And how our modern society, our culture, our very anti-Christian culture is so inconsistent in its accusations and its charges they bring as they shamelessly castigate the Christian faith. For many, they are mad at God. They will blame God for all the evils in the world. But then they tell you, as you cross-examine them, they don't believe in objective good or evil. (laughs) So you have to ask, what then are you upset about? They say they're all about women's rights, our culture does. But then they can't even tell you what a woman is. And they can't tell you on what basis anyone has rights. They say they love freedom of speech and liberalism and and liberty, but just not for Christians because they don't want you to express your own beliefs. They say they're so certain they're right but claim there is no such thing as absolute truth. And they're absolutely certain about that. You see, our culture has no problem with being inconsistent. And it's nothing new. It's the same sort of debauched show of legality they brought to Christ. Hypocritical. And the first injustice then was the capital trial itself. Next was this contrived show of of testimony. The third injustice... Jesus endured was coercive interrogation. Coercive interrogation, we see that from verses 60 through 64. How does it come to this? Well, in verse 60, the high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? Caiaphas is showing frustration. It's kind of beginning to show through the veneer of his neutrality and his piety. I imagine that to this time in the legal proceedings, he's been pretending neutral. He's objective. Maybe he's even the one that is the judge over the trial. We don't know that for certain, but certainly the high priest was the supreme judge over all the land of Israel. The Sanhedrin, again, was Israel's supreme court. 
Well, here, he's losing his patience because time is short. He's got to have a strong case. He's got a lot of work to do before sunup. And so forgetting his pious composure, Caiaphas now throws off the towel, he enters the ring, and he challenges Jesus to a fight, as it were. This is all ironic because Jesus is like a man tied hand and foot being challenged to a fight. Well, Caiaphas knew a conviction must come soon. It must be soon obtained. And so in order to prepare for the next phase of the trial, he begins questioning Jesus. But look, verse 61, but he kept silent and did not answer. Jesus keeps silent. Why wouldn't he reply? Well, first of all, Jesus is practicing his own principle. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, he told us, do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine. That, that is a practice for how to respond or not to respond to somebody who is not worthy of the truth. They won't receive it. Jesus isn't speechless or without an answer, but he knows that any answer he gives, the truth he gives to these men, will not be received. It will be futile. And so he said nothing. Secondly, I believe Jesus' silence here was also his way of making a deafening statement. As one as well informed as Jesus was in matters of jurisprudence and injustice, Jesus will not in any way give authentication to this kangaroo court. And his silence is a rather loud denunciation of the criminal nature of this court. We could say it's really the only fitting response to this game of legality that's being played. Jesus refuses to speak then. But thirdly, Jesus was here by his silence fulfilling Scripture. He was fulfilling Scripture by taking a defenseless stance toward his accusers. Isaiah 53, 9 wrote of the Messiah he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Peter would later write of Christ, we need to learn from this example. And he would say, while being reviled, he, our Lord, did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. 1 Peter 2.23. You see, Jesus is the very epitome of innocence. Even as he is unjustly accused, he doesn't fight back. Of course, as we're going to see, this is part of him offering himself as a sacrifice for human sin. Have you ever thought to yourself, though, I wish I'd kept my mouth shut. I, I wish I would just you know, bite my tongue more. You can never get those words back, can you? Well, this can be hard to do, admittedly, especially in the heat of the moment, but sometimes, I think what Jesus is showing us, sometimes the godliest thing that you can do is nothing at all. Sometimes the most Christ-like thing you can do is to say nothing at all. And don't get the idea that this is the silent treatment this isn't giving your spouse or your neighbor the silent treatment or the cold shoulder. No. Jesus is here filled with the righteousness of God. He's filled with the love and the patience and the peace of God. But in this moment of silence, he loves his enemies. He will love them to the end. He will say, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But he keeps silent. 
I think there's a wonderful lesson to be learned from our Lord. A lesson of self-control. A lesson of how to respond in the face of injustice. Well, Caiaphas has had enough of this silence. So we're told again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Matthew 26, 63 reports Caiaphas as saying, I adjure you, that is, I place you under oath by the living God. That is the highest oath possible in this sort of a court. I I adjure you, I place you under oath by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Caiaphas coerces Jesus to confess his deity. That's what this amounts to. The high priest demands that if Jesus is the Christ, if he's the Son of God, he must tell him the truth on pains of violating the most sacred of oaths. And Caiaphas' question here isn't really a question. It's a a leading question, which leads the defendant or the witness, right, to make a statement. He's going to elicit from Jesus, to coerce from Jesus, a statement regarding his identity. And Caiaphas already knows the answer. The entire court does. That's why Jesus is here. Of course, the initial charges were that Jesus claimed to be the Messiah. But you'll see that the, the latter part of Caiaphas' question has to do with the nature of Jesus' deity. Are you the Son of the Blessed One? Are you the Son of God, is what he's asking. And Mark has told us from the beginning that Jesus is the Son of God. That's clear from chapter 1, verse 1. That is no secret to anyone who's been reading this as an outside observer. We see Jesus is clearly presented as the Son of God through his miracles, through his confession to his disciples, which he later would make explicit to them. And even in Mark chapter 12, in Jesus' parable of the vineyard, it becomes plain to the Sanhedrin that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. But Jesus does it in a parable in a way they're they're very upset about. They know what he's saying. But of course, it's not explicit enough. Well, here, this is a very important moment in Mark's gospel because it is here that Jesus will confess to his enemies under oath, on trial, his identity. Look at verse 62. And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Well, that's the the truth. Jesus answers, I am. He's given a statement to this effect in the garden. We saw the power of that from John's account. But Jesus' answer here is even emphatic. He says, yes, I am. And let me tell you something further. You shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power, coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus is, uh, has made a statement to this effect already to his disciples, Mark 13, 26. But this here was a clear affirmation to his enemies that I am the Son of Man that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7. The idea of sitting at the right hand of power, this was a euphemism for equality with the Most High God. Jesus couldn't claim a higher authority. And Jesus was saying then of himself, you will one day see me as deity, me, the Son of God, coming to judge you. Wow. Well, that explains Caiaphas' reaction. Tearing his clothes, verse 63, the high priest said, what further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. The council declares Jesus worthy of death. That's their verdict. No surprise. 
course, tearing your clothes was a sign of outrage. Caiaphas is absolutely furious. The whole council agrees. There's no need to continue this show any longer. They've got the conviction that they brought Jesus here for. The ironic thing is, it's the truth. That's the whole point of of the gospel. Jesus was the Son of God. And whatever your stance on whether Jesus was the Son of God or not, that was his claim, at least that claim should have been legally investigated. But it wasn't. This here is de facto grounds for Jesus' sentence of death as a blasphemer. So Jesus is telling the truth. The court is unwilling to consider that. And we've seen the injustices Jesus endured from this trial alone were first the capital trial itself, next was the contrived testimony, then coercive interrogation. And finally, we see the fourth injustice was cruel and vindictive treatment. From verse 65, some began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. This treatment was predicted. Jesus predicted it himself from Luke chapter 18. We see that. He took the twelve aside and told them, we're going up to Jerusalem. And behold, all the things that are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. Jesus knew what would happen to him. He predicted what would happen to him down to the details. And where do the prophets predict this sort of treatment? Well, for one thing, Isaiah predicted this in Isaiah 50, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters, Messiah would say, to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. Jesus would fulfill this literally. For all this vindictive treatment laid upon him, He doesn't fight back. He doesn't even flinch. Why wouldn't he protect himself? Well, we've already seen Jesus' humanity in Mark's gospel. It's not because he didn't feel the pain, but it's because in this hour, Jesus was offering himself as a sacrifice. And that meant yielding himself up to even these physical sufferings he would now endure. So he doesn't fight out, fight back. He doesn't defend himself. He takes the blows for the sins of the world. I think we can see here, obviously, that this treatment is cruel. It is vindictive. It lacks legal restraint. This is, if anything, another evidence that there was nothing fair or objective in the minds of these judging Christ. This was all about an opportunity to take out their hate upon Christ. Jesus has declared he's the Son of God who will come to judge them, and so they begin to spitefully mock him. And to beat him, we're told that they blindfold him. And by saying prophesy, in effect, what they were saying is, tell us who hit you. If you're the son of God, if you're really going to judge us, tell us who hit you. Grown men beating on our Lord. And the amazing thing is that Jesus could have at any moment in this kind of cruel and vindictive treatment got up and walked out and said, that is it. And he could have destroyed them all. But he doesn't. Instead, he silently endures. Mark has shown us Jesus endured the worst of injustice. So what does this teach us? 
Why is this story so important for us? Well, for one thing, we need to contemplate the depths of human depravity. In the Brothers Karamazov, Dostoevsky includes a poem about Jesus called The Grand Inquisitor. It's a fictional account of how Jesus is said to have come to earth, showed up in Seville, Spain during the Middle Ages, where he's healing people, he's doing miracles, but the Catholic Church seizes him, arrests him, and he's put on trial before the Grand Inquisitor, who informs Jesus, we no longer have a need of you. We found out very well how to control the masses without you. In fact, we're dealing with the devil now, and we're going to burn you at the stake. That sounds rather alarming, but I think that's a fascinating thought. And I share that because I'm sure there's many people in the USA that think if Jesus showed up in our nation today, he would be worshipped. People would fall down at his feet. But I'm afraid that doesn't ring with what the Bible tells us about human nature. I believe, given the biblical portrait of human depravity in the powers of this world order that operate under the God of this world, I'm inclined to believe Dostoevsky was onto something. If Jesus showed up in our country at this time, he would be crucified again. Oh, maybe he wouldn't be killed in such an inhumane way, but man would find a way to eliminate Christ once again. Because what we're seeing here. In this story that Mark is recounting to us is not the failure of the Jewish people so much as the failure of the human race. Christ was rejected by man. This is an indictment. This should awake us to the sinfulness of our race. But another lesson here is that Christ's followers must endure injustice with Christ-like integrity. And that's not to say if you're a Christian that you must lay down and die and just go as a sheep to the slaughter. No defense. No, no trying to fight injustice in this unjust world. God hates injustice. And I don't believe Jesus was a pacifist. How do we know that? Well, we saw his passionate zeal go to work in the temple. We know that Jesus knew how to crack a whip for the sake of justice. But you may find yourself, Christian, one day in a situation like Jesus. You may find yourself in a kangaroo court. We're appealing to logic. We're appealing to the truth. Well, do you no good? What will you do? Well, when you stand accused in this sort of a situation, I believe you must remember Jesus. We must remember Jesus. We must remember how he endured it. We must remember how he did not blame God. He did not curse his enemies. But he endured justice faithful to God, faithful to righteousness and truth through it all to the end. Of course, Jesus' response to injustice here is most unique because finally we learn from our story that this was all done for us. We must remember all this injustice Christ endured for us. This isn't about casting a stone at Caiaphas or other leaders in our world that are corrupt and unjust. This is about us remembering what Christ did for us. That we might be justified of our crimes. He was declared unjust that we might be declared just. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God. Did Jesus suffer injustice for you? That's what the scriptures say. He did this for you. And if you'd say, 
Pastor, I've been here. I'm here. I never, I never put my faith in Jesus Christ. I, or I'm not sure that I have been declared righteous. That I'm covered in the righteousness of Christ. I'm not sure that if I were to appear before God and His holy bar in heaven right now at this moment, I'm not certain that I would be declared righteous. I don't know I've ever been justified. If that's you... There's good news in the Bible for you. You can be. I would love to talk with you. I know we have brothers and sisters in this church that would love to show you how you can know for certain you've been declared righteous because he was declared guilty. Let's pray.